Hi, folks. As you can tell, we are back to copyright expired music here on the podcast. The saga I've been going through for the past couple weeks, which involved the timeless hit What's Up by Four Non Blondes, the song they played at the Pope's wedding. I cried. And also Ani DeFranco and some references to Paul McCartney. That whole saga, I have to say, is at an end, and I'll tell you why. I happened to be talking to a guy recently who is a copyright lawyer, and he knows a lot about copyright, and I was telling him, yeah, I'm doing this bit on my podcast where, you know, I play the song, but I play it backwards. So I said, you know, I substantially changed the song, and that's why I'm not going to have any copyright issues. And he said, I wouldn't assume that. Huh. Interesting. Maybe I am vulnerable to a lawsuit. So, to be on the safe side, I have gone back to the copyright-expired music. This is Robinson Crusoe's Isle by Harry Graham and Robert Stoltz. But I am still a little worried about being, you know, sued into oblivion by a record company. So, I think the solution is, I need to spend a moment now talking up the artists on the label that owns the rights to What's Up by Four Non Blondes. And then also Ani DeFranco. But one thing at a time, Interscope Records. Wow. I was going to do this as a bit where I, like, ironically talk up the artists on Interscope Records. But then I saw the lineup of legendary yet culturally relevant artists they represent. And holy cannolis! For my money, it just doesn't get better than Interscope Records. Look at these artists. Madonna. Lady Gaga. Elton John. Anything for the straights? Yes, Nine Inch Nails. First time those four have been in a sentence together. Rico Suave. Rico Suave. That was him, but more specifically, it was Interscope Records. Go download that now. Give them some royalties. And it's not just legacy artists. Ones who are producing today. Imagine Dragons. Kendrick Lamar. Selena Gomez. Not the Selena who was shot in the 90s. The one who's alive right now. Folks, it's beyond dispute. It just doesn't get any better than the artist's represented by Interscope Records. I mentioned Rico Suave, right? Moving on, Ani DeFranco. Ani DeFranco, of course, releases music on her own label, an independent label, Righteous Babe Records, because she is integrity personified. She has released more than 20 albums. She has been involved in political causes and charity causes. She recently published a memoir called No Walls and the Recurring Dream, Available from Viking Books. And you know what? What the hell? Also available on my website. <laughs> I'm going to... <laughs> I'm going to make Ani DeFranco's memoir, No Walls and the Recurring Dream, available for purchase on the very page where you found this podcast, because that is just how much I respect her and her work and don't want to be sued. Although I got to admit, it would be a little bit funny to be sued by Ani DeFranco, because if you know her, you know that she has a very like laid-back 60s, kind of a Joni Mitchell-type vibe, so I do kind of love the idea <laughs> that she might be also extremely litigious. Like, you fucked with the wrong person! Nobody plays Ani DeFranco's shit and gets away with it! You can suck my fucking dick! I'm Ani DeFranco! Nonetheless, I hope that doesn't happen. Hello. You're listening to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. I'm Jeff Maurer, the baseball player. No, that was Joe Maurer. I'm Jeff Maurer, the guy who sucks at baseball, and this is the in-your-ears version of stuff that normally goes in your eyeballs. Boy, that's a horrible phrasing. That's ten times grosser than I anticipated. 
the in your ears instead of your eyes ugh, version of my Substack, which is called I Might Be Wrong, where there are many, many, many things, not just the thing that I'm going to read today. Please go there, share the articles, like, subscribe, mail me a million dollars. I will be giving my address at the end of this podcast so that you can mail me that million dollars. Cash, please. No checks. Today's episode is called The Great Dumbening. It is a reaction to a meme that went around on Twitter. God help me if reacting to memes that go around on Twitter becomes a common practice on this podcast. But there was this meme that a lot of people saw that had stick figures in the left, right, and center that sort of describes what some people feel happened to the left, right, and center over the past decade or so. I have posted it on the page where this podcast is, on my Substack. I might be wrong. So if you're not looking at that right now, then you might want to go there so you can see what I'm talking about. That meme, I kind of related to it. I kind of understood it. A lot of people seemed to. That is, I guess, why it went viral. And I thought, boy, that's pretty close to right. I'm not sure if it's completely right. Let me go into a little more detail and tell the story as I understand it to be. So the episode's called The Great Dumbening Subheading, Taking Stick Figures Way Too Seriously. So the starting point for this really is that little stick figure cartoon that went viral. Elon Musk tweeted it. Elon Musk, a guy I simply cannot get myself to care about. He tweeted it. It went viral. If you haven't seen it already, go to I Might Be Wrong and click on the little stick figure thing so you can look at it and see what we're talking about. Got it? Fantastic. That meme got a lot of attention. I do understand why. It is, I think, hard to deny that something is going on on the left. And I will confess, I looked at this little stick figure meme and thought about it for, frankly, way too long. It was hours. It was hours. <laughs> hours approaching days. It did eventually start to feel like I was pondering the allegorical subtext of a Marmaduke cartoon. I thought about it too much. Nonetheless, I found it interesting. And people who are far better at political analysis than I am have looked at what data we have. And we don't have a ton of data with trends this large, but they've looked at what data we have to try to determine if progressives, liberals, whatever, people on the left have moved left in the past decade. So, and there are links if you go to the written version of this article. Matt Iglesias and Milan Singh, those are two smart people, looked at uh, party platforms in the past couple decades to see if they've moved. David Shore looked at it. Philip Bump weighed in on this. The consensus does seem to be that, yeah, the left is somewhat more left. Now, asterisk athon, this type of analysis is just inherently tricky. I mean, for starters, who counts as the left? Who's that? Is it Democratic politicians? Is it people generally on the left? Is it people on the left who don't identify as Democrats? And there are plenty of those. Who counts as the left? Which opinions matter? There are many opinions. They're not all equally held. What does moving left even mean? We've all moved left on gay marriage, but we've all moved left on gay marriage, so that's not exactly radicalization. These are fair questions. They are difficult to answer, but instead of letting them bog down what I think would be an otherwise interesting discussion, I am just going to wave them away with the wise words of a mostly naked Will Ferrell in that famous post-9-11 sketch who asked, why are bushes bushy? I mean, if we're going to get in that area, we're going to be here all day. A reference which is just an excuse to bring up that sketch, because if you saw Will Ferrell's mostly bare ass cheeks after 9-11, you remember how important to the healing process they were. Anyway, I think that stick figure meme captures something real 
but I also think it's missing a bit of context. So, what follows here is the cartoon as I would draw the cartoon, in which I look to objective metrics as much as possible, but in which I am, admittedly, going largely by feel. This is one person's perception. Take it for what you will. And I'm going to reference the drawings I made, so I'd recommend that you go to the written version where I have posted these drawings, as well as Ani DeFranco's biography, so you can follow along. So panel one, the 1990s. There's a left, right, and a center. There's me, a confused teenager in the middle with long hair, which I had back then. And there is a conservative on the right, sprinting to the right. And this is the 1990s. Do you happen to remember that there used to be a thing called a Northeast Republican? I'm not making this up. There were Northeast Republicans. They could be found typically in the Northeast, New England, and they were usually the villain in National Lampoon movies. They were an interesting breed. They were very into boats. They very much liked uh, shirts with little logos on the left breast. They liked church a lot, and not the kind of fun kind of church where you wear a jazzy hat and sing upbeat songs. They really liked the dour kind of church, the kind I went to growing up, where you read pre-written prayers and you apologize to God for your genitals for an hour a week. Uh, Northeast Republicans, they were horrified by all things improper. They did not like improper things. They were furious about Jimmy Carter's sweaters. They turned on Nixon when he was shown to be both a rule breaker and a potty mouth. That's what Northeast Republicans were like. They were not particularly fire breathers on race. They were, in fact, integral to passing the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And George H.W. Bush was probably the quintessential Northeast Republican. George H.W. Bush ended up being a divisive figure in the Republican Party. Writers including Jeffrey Cabasaurus and E.J. Dionne have chronicled the intra-GOP revolt that happened in response to George H.W. Bush's perceived to not be conservative enough presidency. When Bush lost, the newly ascendant right won big in the 1994 midterms, an election that was dubbed the Gingrich Revolution. Who dubbed it that? Newt Gingrich. I'm almost positive. At any rate, that was kind of a watershed election. The GOP made Rush Limbaugh an honorary member of the 1994 Republican freshman class in Congress, which I think is a statement. I think that is a bit like showing up on a date with a bag full of condoms, lube, and sex toys in that you are making it perfectly clear where your head is at and what you are hoping to do. That was 1994. And we do actually have a data point here, take it for what you will. Between 1995 and 2015, the proportion of Republicans who call themselves, quote, very conservative, went from 19% to 33%. By my math, that's something kind of close to doubling. When can you say almost double? What are the rules there? Anyway, 19% to 33%. Other measures, and there are political scientists who try to measure this type of thing, note a rightward shift around that time. It really goes kind of all through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Republican office holders in the Northeast and the West Coast, those mostly disappeared. To a large extent, this shift to the right seems to have been caused largely by demographic sorting and also by the disambiguation of the parties that happened as Dixiecrats disappeared. There were a lot of Democrats who voted for Reagan. That was kind of a realignment. That is all true. Of course, the efforts of conservative activists around that time who captured the Republican Party, those activists also played a major role, which is as close as I will ever get to giving Newt Gingrich credit for anything.
So that's what I see in the 90s, a rightward shift by the Republican Party. Panel 2, the 2000s and the 2010s. Here we have liberals, now including me, because I'm an adult, technically, at that point. We are on the left. In the center right, you have a guy I'm labeling a smart conservative, because those people are out there. And on the far right, you have a stick figure I have labeled GOP blowing his brains out, because in my perception, that is basically what happened during this time. So, in the 2000s, what happened? Several things. First is that Fox News became a behemoth. They came on the air in 1996. By the 2000s, they were gigantic. Conservative radio really spread quickly. Clear Channel Communications, they're now iHeartMedia, but Clear Channel Communications bought up stations across the country. They made a lot of those stations into AM conservative talk radio. Conservative bloggers like Matt Drudge and Eric Erickson gained influence. The right-wing dream of a conservative media ecosystem, which had existed at least since those meddling kids Woodward and Bernstein got everyone's panties in a twist over Watergate. That dream had finally come to pass. They built the ecosystem they wanted. And that's kind of fucked up. Journalism is ostensibly about the truth, right? Journalism's platonic ideal, the ideal you hear waxed about constantly in Oscar bait movies and West Wing monologues, The ideal is an unvarnished presentation of reality. Walter Cronkite's famous sign-off was, and that's the way it is, fuckos. Except without the fuckos, most nights. And that's the way it is, not, and those are the parts we thought you'd like, we hope you had fun. I think Cronkite's sign-off had a distinct air of, you know what, like it, don't like it, I don't really give a shit, which I personally consider fantastic. So that's the ideal. Conservative media stood in distinct opposition to that ideal. They took a different approach. They asked, what if you decided what the world was like before you gathered the news and then only reported the bits that fit that narrative? It was a game-changing approach, similar to Jack Donaghy's suggestion on 30 Rock that comedy writers start with the catchphrases and then work backwards. It was a game-changing approach, and it worked in terms, at least, of gaining viewers. Unfortunately, it is also probably more responsible than any other factor for the near-total brain death of the Republican Party. And now a brief digression that's going to come back. The writer Tim Urban, who I think is always an interesting read, Tim Urban thinks that viewing politics along a simple left-right continuum is incomplete. He thinks that we need to consider not just what we believe, but why we believe it. He takes the traditional left-right political spectrum and he uses it as the x-axis on a graph that also has a y-axis. And that y-axis charts the push and pull between what he calls the primitive mind and the higher mind. Now, the primitive mind, as you might guess, is pretty damn primitive. It is the impulse we all have to look after our immediate needs and our safety. It is short-sighted. It is selfish, and it specializes in identifying bad guys and then slaying them. In contrast, the higher mind represents our more reasoned and broad-minded tendencies. Politics, you might have noticed, tends to speak to the primitive mind. (laughs) And of course it does. That's the software that's really working well in all of us. After all, we did spend millions of years evolving those habits, and the idea that you should not 
immediately kill your enemies with a rock. That is a relatively new and edgy concept. So what this leads us to is a graph that has the political spectrum on the x-axis and the higher mind and primitive mind on the y-axis. And what Urban charts is a graph that ends up looking like an arch. He thinks that people operating on the higher end of the higher mind spectrum kind of cluster a little bit towards the middle, though not always. This is something you kind of need to see to get it. So I have once again posted it on the page where this podcast exists, along with Ani DeFranco's biography, which I encourage you to buy. So I'm mentioning this graph by Tim Urban to say that in the 2000s and the 2010s, I feel that the Republican Party came to appeal mostly to the bottom right quadrant of that graph, driven largely by right-wing media. The GOP's animating force became just a desire to own the libs, which I think is completely clear. If you just watch Fox News for 10 minutes, all they want to do is own the libs. It's the only reason they get up in the morning. Policy in the Republican Party became maybe a fourth or fifth order concern, which does explain why the Trump administration had really no policy goals other than to be bizarro world Obama. And it also explains why the 2020 Republican convention did not produce a platform. I mean, policy, who gives a shit? It's all about owning the libs. Dominating liberals is now such an unbelievably high priority in the Republican Party that hinting that you will ignore the results of a Democratic election, as the new candidate for governor in Pennsylvania has done, and he is only one of many Republican politicians who are now testing those waters, that is treated as a sign of party loyalty and not as pretty damn obvious authoritarianism. And personally, I consider today's Republican Party to be totally incapable of solving problems. I think they've become that way because conservative media has distorted their worldview so badly that they no longer have the ability to even recognize problems. They are living in a fantasy land. No wonder they can't come up with solutions for the real world. Now, this turn, this does bother me quite a bit. Personally, I have never identified as a conservative, but I do see the value of the conservative philosophy. There should be someone in society who defends what's already working in society and does not fall for every half-baked idea produced by pot-fueled rap sessions in college dorms. The world does need a discerning and principled counterbalance to the sometimes very stupid ideas that pop up on the left. The fact that the Republican Party can no longer perform that function, that does actually worry me quite a bit. On to panel three, the early 2010s. And we have here the GOP on the far right laying dead in a pool of blood. The smart conservative, not so far right, uh, looking very worried. Liberals, including me, on the left. And now you have a zombie something walking towards the liberals and begging for brains. And this is roughly the era addressed by the original cartoon. And once again, I agree, something has happened here. Something happened in the 2010s. A lot has been written about this. A lot of people on the left have written about this. This panel that I've drawn is my attempt to capture mainly the fact that I think what happened was a little bit more complex than just the left moved left. I think basically 
a new ideology has invaded the left. Nobody quite knows what to call this ideology. A lot of people say woke or wokeism. You hear that a lot. Wesley Yang calls it the successor ideology. Personally, I like to say religious left because it reminds me so much of the religious conservatism that I grew up with. And in this drawing, I have depicted this ideology as a zombie to convey that I think this is something coming from outside. This is not just all the stuff that was there before, only more so. This is something basically foreign. More on that in a bit. So, why did things change when they did? Well, I think it probably starts where the conservative story started, with geographic sorting. Blue parts of the country are a lot bluer than they used to be, and economic stratification has overlapped with economic polarization. Depending on what circles you run in, you can go a long time without encountering someone who thinks differently than you. When I was at Last Week Tonight, I used to ask myself, when was the last time I talked to a Republican? Not counting my dad. When was the last time I talked to a Republican? And uh, sometimes I couldn't even remember the last time I had talked to a Republican. In certain circles, you can go a long-ass time without encountering someone with a different viewpoint. And that is late-night political comedy. Late-night political comedy is a weird space. It is far enough left to make your typical Vermont art collective look like a Proud Boys meeting. And that's a weird environment, and I personally think it's a bad environment because, of course, ideological homogeneity leads to groupthink. These environments, in my opinion, are basically human growth hormone for bad ideas. So I think part of it's the old blue places got bluer, red places got redder story. And I also think that the liberal media landscape now more closely resembles the media landscape that conservatives built. Mainstream outlets like the New York Times, like NPR, CNN, other places, those have changed due to the exodus of their conservative audience. Conservatives don't really consume those things anymore. Your audience, by definition, moved to the left. That has changed things for mainstream media. And also the rise of the engagement-based business model, that has changed things. You're now chasing clicks all the time. MSNBC is a thing now. It is neither as popular nor as terrible as Fox News, <laughs> in my opinion. And it would probably be more popular if it was more terrible. But regardless, MSNBC is out there. It exists. It sucks. And it's part of the landscape. To my eternal regret, I have to mention that I think late-night political comedy shows played a role in this. And then, of course, there's Twitter. Twitter, we know, is significantly younger and significantly farther left than the general population. And it also includes every damn journalist in America. Being on Twitter is part of your job now if you're a journalist. Therefore, journalists are far more likely than other people to think that Twitter is real life. What we have done is to create a clicky, performative environment that is about 10 times worse than the viper pit of high school, and then we have required the country's most influential people, journalists, to spend large amounts of time there. And this is the environment in which a simplistic worldview that sees all things as zero-sum conflict between oppressor and oppressed, that has bubbled up and gained purchase. I'm not sure if this way of seeing the world is actually more common than before or just more prominent. It might be that it exists basically in similar levels as it did in the past, but it just gets more attention now. It is definitely true that Twitter will 
put you in touch with people who believe this. Twitter will put you in touch with colossal morons who used to be unable to reach you. What a fantastic service. At any rate, this worldview is, at the very least, a lot more influential than it used to be. Ideas that used to mostly just exist in teach-ins at Antioch College and also stage banter from all-female punk bands, those ideas have gone mainstream. And I also think that the movement's constant focus on race, on gender, and on other identity issues, that has made a lot of people on the left not quite know how to respond to it. After all, ending discrimination based on race, based on gender, based on sexual orientation, that is so central to the identity of people on the left that I I think we've kind of become easy marks. Anyone can say, hey, this thing that I'm promoting, this is anti-racist. And you say that to a liberal, that is a little bit like saying this is anti-fire to Frankenstein. We are just very likely to be into whatever you're selling. So this has proven to be an effective tactic. The appeal to deeply held values and then combined with the social penalty for appearing to betray those deeply held values, that has made those of us on the left kind of slow to call bullshit on various spurious charges of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, or whatever else. And I think this hesitance has allowed the zombie virus to spread. Now on to the fourth and final panel, 2022 in which I've depicted the GOP is still on the right, stone dead, smart conservative getting more worried by the minute, liberals on the left, like me, still very worried, and now we have many zombies wandering all around, not just to our left, but all around, once again calling for brains. And this is my way of depicting what I think is happening on the left, which is that I think we are very much in turmoil. 2020 did seem to be the high watermark of the craziness, so we're down from that a little bit, but things are still dicey. I personally am far from ready to say that sanity has won the day. After all, there was a brief moment in 2013 when it looked like Republicans were going to tack back towards the center, and then we all know how that turned out. And one of the important things I want to communicate with this particular panel, the feelings that I've been feeling very strongly recently, is that this new ideology, whatever it is, it is not liberal. It is not liberal as other people have pointed out. But something I would like to add is that I also don't think it's progressive or left according to most definitions. I think that the more you look at this way of thinking, the more it reveals itself to be honestly totally antithetical to the American liberal left tradition. So let me go through that. Like I said, other people have pointed out this trend is not liberal. Liberalism values things like free speech, things like individual rights, things like due process. Remember Henry Fonda in 12 Angry Men? That movie was all about due process. God, he owned those 11 other losers. This new movement sees free speech as a fig leaf for white supremacy. It focuses on group outcomes at the expense of individual rights, and it replaces due process with Twitter justice, which is sort of a dark ages conception of justice executed by modern means. But the point is, this is 100% not a liberal movement. This movement is liberal the same way that Blue Velvet is a kid's movie. And personally, I would go even further. I often feel that this movement isn't even progressive or on the left in any substantial way. We use labels. I use labels like progressive and left 
because this is a newish phenomenon and we are all struggling to find language to describe it, but I often think that those words do not fit. After all, if progressivism has a defining trait, then it has to be distributing resources towards the disadvantaged. If that's the case, then why are so-called progressives calling for extremely regressive universal student loan forgiveness? Not capped, not means-tested, universal, which is awfully damn regressive. Why did so many progressives advocate for school closures that were devastating to poor kids well past the point when they were necessary? Why are they looking to alter the college admissions process in a way that will benefit the wealthy and well-connected? Why are they undercutting people's real wages by pushing ineffective solutions to inflation? Why are they so often the tip of the spear in the fight against lower housing costs? This is progressive. The fuck this is progressive. This is idiocy. And I think the reality here is that this movement is not defined by finding solutions to problems. It is defined by performative flailing against perceived enemies. Every issue I just mentioned is a crusade against someone or something on the lefties' enemies list. Greedy developers, evil corporations, or of course the omnipresent white supremacy. The fact that the impacts of this movement's actions would very often hurt the disadvantaged, doesn't seem to phase its believers. And I do think that's telling. They don't look beyond the glorious fight against their evil, evil enemies, because the glorious fight is the end goal. And ultimately, I think this viewpoint bears some similarity to the movement that destroyed the GOP's ability to solve problems. Any consideration beyond the glorious struggle against the evil ones, capital letters, has been tossed aside. This is the primitive mind reveling in its element like a pig in a pile of shit. There is no quest for a more perfect nation here. There is only the battle between the righteous and the wicked. This movement is trying to gain influence, and they have scored a few victories. If they capture the Democratic Party the way that the brain-dead types who are only interested in combat have captured the GOP then honestly, I do think we're in trouble. And by the way, if you've ever wondered why the I Might Be Wrong logo is a man falling through space, here is why. When I started this blog and podcast in mid-2021, I was feeling really unmoored. Institutions I had depended on for my whole life were changing in ways that seemed to betray their core principles. Or, you know what, maybe they weren't changing. Maybe I was changing and I had just chosen the wrong touchstones. Or maybe I was deeply wrong about these institutions' core principles to begin with, which, if true, would bring into question my ability to make judgments about anything. Look, I didn't know the cause of the change. I just knew the effect. I was feeling lost. I was feeling blind, with no points of reference, just spinning spinning, spinning through space, a lot like the guy in the picture. And by the way, yes, he's yellow because I wanted to invoke that scene from 2001, A Space Odyssey. And in the past year, I do feel like I've gotten my bearings back a little bit. The main way that I've done that is by, number one, realizing that a lot of people feel the same way that I do. And then number two, 
I think I've gained a slightly better understanding of what's going on, phrased another way, a slightly better understanding of what's going on. Thank you for non-blondes. That understanding of what's going on is basically what I've outlined in this post. Maybe that story feels familiar to you. I am sure it is imprecise. I am sure it is full of holes. This is an awfully big thing. I can't get my head all the way around it. I asked people for thoughts in the comment section, and uh, a lot of people offered some interesting stuff. There's a nice back and forth. I think you should check it out. But I do think the one thing we know here is that, as suggested by the popularity of the original stick figure meme, one thing that's happening is a lot of people are wondering what's happening. And hopefully, talking things through like this will help at least some of us reorient ourselves and get back to focusing on progress. And that's the episode. Can I say a few nice things about Linda Perry of Four Non Blondes now so that I don't get sued? I can and I shall. First of all, I want to point out, I do actually like that song. You know, I've kind of been having some fun with it because it exists so perfectly in that early 90s genre that it's just sort of an inherently funny time. But I do actually like the song. I think a lot of those 90s hits are actually a hell of a lot of fun. And here's what I learned about the lead singer-songwriter from that band, Linda Perry. First of all, she didn't fade away. She became a producer. Good for you, Linda. That's where the real money is. And this is my favorite part. She was once married to Sarah Gilbert, the actress who played Darlene. <laughs> on Roseanne. I love the idea of all those early 90s figures coming together. It's like if Jonathan Taylor Thomas joined Pearl Jam, you know, or just like if Joey Lawrence and Scottie Pippen were now roommates or whatever. Just all the figures together in an early 90s singularity. So that's fun. They're divorced now. That happens. I take Linda Perry's side in that divorce because I do not want her to sue me. That's it for today. I hope I have achieved my twin goals of providing entertainment, and inoculating myself against lawsuits. I will be back next week with another attempt to scurry out of the deep, deep legal hole I have dug for myself. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now. Bye.